Thank you, Pete. We'll turn to the scriptures again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and we will read from verses 1 to 9. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able yet to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Trust the Lord will add a blessing to this word uh, to us this morning. When looking into this chapter, I remembered back to a time in my life when I changed from being an employee to being self-employed, where I owned my own dairy farming business. My forestry employment at the time was good and I enjoyed working in the forestry, but I wanted to better myself. I wanted to better myself and my family and for me the way ahead was to be self-employed in my own business where I could make the decisions. I wanted freedom. The freedom of calling the shots. A business where I could build up an asset that would prove itself by being profitable and have lasting beneficial effects to our family. Well, I made the switch. Matter of fact, in a single, a single day, I said, I said goodbye to my forestry boss and became my own boss. My plans, my goals, my dreams, if you want to put it that way, became a reality with a few signatures at the bank and the local lawyer's office. My days as a forestry worker were no longer. I now was a brand new farmer, owner-operator, dairy farm. I then looked ahead positively. You know, I could see that now, from now on, my life was going to be a whole lot better. This was my thinking. I was going to have more family time. I could take holidays when I chose. I could make real profit increasing decisions. 
all this was like sweet music to my egotistical ears. My new capacity as a self-employed dairy farmer, I'd achieved it. But then true reality kicked in. Within the first three years, we had a major drought. Within those first three years, we had major interest rate rises at the bank loans from 3% to 17%. Farm machinery failed. And on top of all that, I went down with a disease that I caught from cattle called leptospirosis. I had ill health. And on top of that, there was a whole host of other farm-related struggles, which I never even thought of that became the norm. You see, life as a self-employed dairy farmer was not an easier option when you weighed it all up because there was so much stacked against you. Sometimes I was a little bit like those Israelites, you know, who went out into the wilderness, oh, that I may be back in Egypt. The plain sailing of my self-employment dream soon lost its gloss and life for myself and family became more demanding and required more time, more effort and determination than I had ever known before in my life. You get the picture? This is a little like, a little like what happens when we become Christians. This is what it was like for the Corinthian believers. You see, they were once identified as natural, right? We had that in the last chapter. That's it, the unsaved, the unconverted. They were unbelievers. We had that in 2.14. They were once blind to the wisdom of God. They were bound by Satan and sin and under the eternal wrath of God for their sins. They were in deep spiritual trouble. And they looked ahead and there was no light at the end of the tunnel. There was no hope. We can all identify with that, right? That's what an unbeliever's lot is like. Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the only way they look at life. Because what hope is there, really? Except maybe amassing a bit of wealth. But man, that's just so futile. It can be here today and gone tomorrow. But now, just transport ourselves back into the Corinthian time and your own life, but now, these people were spiritual. They were no longer natural that we had last week. They were spiritual. That is, they were now indwelt by the Spirit of God and they now had a brand new capacity to understand spiritual things because now they had the mind of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. A drastic change had taken place, far greater than being an employee to an employer or a self-employed. A great change had taken place. You know, what a magnificent change of identity had taken place in these people's lives and also into every one of you who knows Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord personally. What a magnificent change. What a magnificent change of spiritual status with God, that is. Sometimes we treat it too lightly. What a magnificent change in their eternal destiny and we don't even have to sign for it. 
But then true reality kicks in, right? True reality kicks in. And these Corinthian believers now find that Christian living is harder and more demanding than ever before. You ever found that? Yes, as true believers in Jesus Christ, they were forgiven, absolutely. They were freed from the tyrannical power of Satan's domain, absolutely. And now they had an eternal hope, absolutely. But life was now more difficult and demanding for them than it ever was before. Now don't get sucked into the idea that when you become a Christian or supposed to become a Christian, everything is a bed of roses. Like some Christians will tell you that if you're a good Christian, you'll be healthy, wealthy and wise. We don't preach a prosperity doctrine here. No, no, no. We preach the opposite. When you become a Christian and you live faithfully to the Lord, it's far more probable that your life will become far more difficult, just like it was for the Corinthians. And that's how it is. And that's what it's like being a biblical Christian. Why? Because so much in life is stacked up against you. It's more demanding. It requires more effort. It requires more determination than was ever needed before. And if you're finding, well, no, that's not true, well, come and see me after because maybe that you're not even a Christian at all. So we can say, well, why is this? Why is this more demanding? and more difficult and why is the struggles there now that we didn't have before why is this the case for genuine believers the answer is we now have enemies you got this we now have enemies against us that used to be our allies Satan our arch enemy now uses the very things we used to love and pamper to tempt us and weaken our faith One of these enemies is the external weapon of the world and all its ideologies and all its concepts and all of this is what you need kind of thing. And the other is the internal weapon of our unredeemed flesh. And that unredeemed flesh every person has, every believer has, still hankers after what the world dangles in front of us. It really does. And so these two enemies attack us and make life difficult more than ever before. You know, it's like that salmon who swims upstream, you know, against the, the, the tidal, the, the flow of that fast-flowing stream. It's like that salmon. We as believers, we battle against the stream, the flow of the world and the flesh. That's what it's like. That's the way of the Christian life. It's not easy. And you only have to go to Romans chapter 7 to see how Paul words this going against the flow. He finds it difficult. Read Romans chapter 7 and you will see what he considers the Christian life to be. The great and mighty apostle. So you're not alone here, folks. You're not alone, right? We constantly need to guard against these two enemies that Satan uses. The external, the world and its influences, and the internal, the flesh, which still loves yielding to temptation. And so this is a problem that was going down in Corinth. And the influences of the world and temptation of the flesh were overcoming them and it was causing havoc in the church, right? As a matter of fact, this entire letter that 
we have here to the Corinthian church, what it is is seeing Paul trying to correct one sin after the other, which was a result of failing to win the battle against the world and against the flesh. That's what it's all about, one after the other. I like how one commentator puts it. He puts it like this, Our ultimate triumph over the world and the flesh is certain. We can rejoice in that, right? Because we know one day it will be ultimate triumph. Our ultimate triumph over the world and the flesh is certain, but our continued struggle with them in this life is also certain. We will win the ultimate battle, but can lose a lot of skirmishes along the way. So don't be downcast if you can look back at your life and maybe even right now and you're amongst, in a struggle against the flesh and you have to confess you have even lost some. Be encouraged because we can win and we can battle against them. And so the Corinthians had lost many of these skirmishes and the one that Paul deals with now is the sin that, that was causing division. Okay? And uh, we can never look at one sin by itself because there's no one sin that's not interrelated with others, right? That's a fact. And um, you know how it goes. One sin leads to another. Uh, sin by itself, it's, it's never in isolation. Never in isolation. And so from chapter 1, verse 18, right through to chapter, verse 16 of chapter 2, Paul emphasizes that their division is a result of the external influences of the world. And we've been dealing with that. That is dependence on human wisdom. Okay? So he's been dealing with that. But from here on, from 3 to 1, 9, our text today, he shows them that their division is a result of the internal, internal attack on the flesh of the flesh, which yields, as I've said before, to the sinful tendencies of our unredeemed humanness. So Paul now gives his readers in this section, I've just got for our message today, he gives his readers the reason, the demonstration and the solution for the sinful division amongst them. So the first one we're going to look at is the reason for division. Okay, so we see this in the first three verses or the first, uh, up to the first part of verse 3 in our, in our reading. Now, as we look at the text, and uh, we will note that here Paul softens his approach. He doesn't pull any punches when he speaks to the uh, Corinthians, but he softens his approach. And so how does he do that? He does it by calling them brethren. Now, it had it been me, I probably would have said, now listen, you rebels. That's because of my flesh sort of says what it shouldn't do. But he softens his approach. He calls his readers brethren. This is a term of endearment. It's a term of love. It's a term of association. All of you are my brethren. And I love you all dearly because you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he calls them brethren. But this closeness, this closeness, this term of endearment does not hold Paul back from telling them their sinful issue and their problem that they have. 
You note that? But that's how it should be, right? That's how it should be amongst friends and certainly it should be amongst family and it certainly should be amongst the family of God, right? Too many Christians would rather say nothing and hear nothing and only want brotherly love reinforced without the rebuke from a faithful friend. Too many of us would rather not speak up or rather not hear about the problem than enjoy the brotherly love part. Reminded in Proverbs, this principle here that says, better is an open rebuke than love concealed. Paul openly rebukes him here. He doesn't conceal his love for them by not saying it how it should be. There's another one that follows on in Proverbs, which is in verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. How cool is that? Yes, what our friends tell us in love, what our brothers and sisters tell us in love, it's meant for our good. It's faithfulness. And so Paul here, as a brother in the Lord, as one who loves these people, even though they've erred and and making some massive mistakes, he calls them brethren, but it doesn't hold them back from speaking truth into their lives. I would love there to be more, a lot more authenticity in that amongst believers today. What about yourself? You know what it's like when we someone comes and says, "Hey." This is what I've heard. Tell me if it's true. But if it is, you're certainly going the wrong way. Man, it hurts you, don't know. Instantly the flesh rises and says, how dare you speak to me? What right have you got? Mind your own business. May we see the... It's better to be rebuked than love concealed. But we see then that Paul doesn't stop there. He launches into the reason for the Corinthian sinful divisiveness and and he tells them, this is what he tells them, I cannot speak to you as spiritual men but as to men of of the flesh or some of your translations might have carnal. That's what it means, flesh. In other words, I cannot speak to you because you're only infants in Christ. Now we're all infants in Christ. The moment we come to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we are in the infancy stage of our walk with the Lord. But don't need to stop there. It's not to stop there. So Paul is saying, although you are genuine believers through faith alone and Christ alone, now don't forget, at this stage of this letter, many of these believers were at least five years old in the faith. You got the picture? At least five years old in the faith. He says, you're behaving like you're just being born again. Your behavior as Christians is infantile. When at the stage of your spiritual walk with the indwelling Spirit of God, it should be progressing. Yes, you are spiritual and you are mature positionally in Christ, but you are living like God's wisdom in the gospel has never been grasped. You are living as if you, you do not have the resident teacher of the Holy Spirit indwelling and controlling your life. You are living in the flesh, not in the power of the Spirit of God. You see, folks, 
just like the early believers at Corinth, we too can sinfully choose to be men of the flesh. And when I say men, it's a generic term, men and women. Men of the flesh through the choices we make in life. We can choose to do that. It is possible to be spiritual and mature positionally with God, but it is possible by yielding to the unredeemed sinful flesh that we all have to never be anything more than infants and babes in the faith. Yeah, it's wonderful to see a newborn baby, isn't it? It's been a while. So come on. It's been a while. It's a wonderful thing to see a newborn baby, but it's woeful. It's woeful when that baby remains a baby, no progress, no growth, no development. You would have to agree on that. And so this is where the Corinthians were spiritually. No growth, no development, no progress in the spiritual pathway of faith. Hence, Paul could only give them spiritual food that were fit for infants in Christ. He gave them milk. He wanted to give them deeper stuff, but he could not. The people who should have matured and progressed and grown in the wisdom of God, they were still spiritually ignorant. Spiritually ignorant. The very people who should have been hungering after the solid meat of God's word, what were they doing? They were still paddling around in the shallows of spiritual truth. They were spiritual babies. These people, like the immature believers of of Hebrews chapter 5, the same idea is cooked up again by the writer of Hebrews, these who should have been able to teach even and exhort others. They should have been able to counsel others. They should have had enough spiritual nous here and here to be able to take others aside and teach them the word of God. But because of their woeful lack of spiritual growth, they were only able to take in milk and not solid food. So whose fault is this stunted growth? Whose fault is it? Why is it so? Among those believers then and among believers today, maybe in your life. You see, this woeful state can be helped along. This is just one example. It certainly can be helped along by by the preacher or the pastor who never gets preaching in his messages anything by the gospel. I love the gospel, absolutely. But Sunday after Sunday, you'll find some preachers, year in, year out, he only gives his sheep the milk and more milk and more milk. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Believe in him, you shall be saved. Fantastic message. The very central core of the gospel. But there's more to the gospel than that, folks. More. And for a pastor or a preacher to only give his sheep milk is a travesty of God's call in his life to lovingly and caringly feed the flock of God a well-balanced diet which is given in the Great Commission where he is asked to teach them what things? Some things? No, all things. All things. That's one reason why it could... uh, Believers can be studied. Another one could be that 
the congregation doesn't want their pastor to, to, to go too deep. I don't want you to go too deep. We don't want you to go too deep. Just stick to the simple message of, of Jesus. Wonderful message, by the way, as I said before. Just give us bite-sized evangelistic sermons so that we can bring other people in and they can hear the gospel. That's all we want. Just give us sermonettes. As you know what the old-fashioned saying says, sermonettes make Christianettes, right? And often, by the way, that request, if it does come from any congregation or maybe from an individual, that request is more than often hidden behind it is so that their own sin won't be exposed as a believer or rebuked or corrected because, you see, evangelism is for unbelievers, right? Not necessarily for believers. But why were these people so infantile in their living out of God's wisdom? Why were they? It was certainly not because they were dumb, these Corinthians. It wasn't because they had a low IQ, no. They had it all together, these guys. It was not because of, of a lack of balanced preaching like we're talking about, because after all, you know the great apostle Paul? He was a man amongst men when it came to preaching, right? And he spent 18 months, if you go back to the book of Acts, 18 months teaching these people, counselling them, and, and trying to move them on. 18 months. Acts 16. No, the reason they could not and were not able, it says, not able to digest the deeper truths of God was not an intellectual gap, but it was a spiritual gap. The reason they were still spiritual infants and stunted in their spiritual growth was because they refused to give up the ways of the world and walk away from their fleshly lusts that came from within them. So they bowed under pressure from the world without and they yielded to temptation from the pressures from within. You got me? So the reason for this sinful division that erupted was that the enemy of the soul, the lusts of the flesh, held sway and kept this church, these Christians, as spiritual infants. What a woeful state. At this stage, let's heed the Apostle Peter's words here. I love these words. In 1 Peter 2.11 it says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Some of us guys here were sitting yesterday talking uh, about our sanctification process and, and how uh, that, um, it's God working within us and yet at the same time we are responsible to take action. We are responsible to discipline ourselves and here is one of the disciplines. Urge you as aliens abstain from flesh. Ever heard, ever heard of the word abstinence? Can take on lots of forms. It means just basically cutting it off, getting rid of it, not going in that direction. And some of us have to do that. Whether it's the computer screen, whether it's watching pornography or anything like that, if, if, if we've got a weakness in an area, you've got to cut it off. You get rid of it. That's what it takes. 
not bad of just sitting back, well, Spirit, Holy Spirit, give me the power within to just not look at those sights or not do this or not think bad thoughts or not be jealous anymore um, or, or whatever. No, 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 you've got to take some discipline. You've got, to put, you've, got to, you've got to put your own mind and heart and feet and hands and eyes into action as well. So how was this division demonstrated? Well, this is our next point. We see the demonstration of the division. We see this in the um, verses three, uh, second part of verse 3 right through to 4. The demonstration of division. You know, one thing I've learned over the years about infants... And my wife and I have had five. A couple of them are here this morning. They're not infants anymore. Praise the Lord, they've grown. And, um, but I've had a fair bit to do with infants over the years. And uh, one thing that I've learned is that when given the opportunity, they soon demonstrate the ability to cause division. They do, don't they? And the two tools, and you will gel with me with this, you will gel with me. The two tools that kids, babies, default into is jealousy and strife. It's there. I've seen this demonstrated over and over and again in my own kids, in my grandchildren, in kids in this church. I've seen it over and over again. It's evident wherever kids are. And this is how it goes. You only have to put, two, only have to put kids together, right? You only have to put kids together and, and so often you will see a self-centeredness kick in like big time. It, it just proves that uh, they're depraved little creatures that need Christ as their saviour just like anyone else. They don't have to be taught how to be like this. They don't learn it. It's just a natural because of their depraved little hearts. You put kids together and, and you'll soon see self-centeredness kick in and, and it begins with an attitude of jealousy. It does. It begins with an attitude of jealousy. This is how it goes. I want that toy that you've got. He never wanted it before, but all of a sudden he sees someone else got something and he wants it, right? I want your book. I want and kicks up a patty because he's not getting or she's not getting the attention that she sees someone else getting. You seen with me? I can see some nods going around. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You see, but jealousy, it's an attitude, right? It's an attitude. It's something from within. This is where it starts. And jealousy is never satisfied until its self-centered want is fed. You got that? It's never satisfied until its self-centered want is fed. And that's when you see strife erupt. And I know you've seen this. With children, it can erupt in a whole variety of ways. It can erupt with screaming tantrums. It can erupt with a sulky silence. It can even erupt to physical clashes, you know, pushing. I want that book. And so he can't get it, so she pushes and shoves and he does and whatever. You see, jealousy is an inner emotional condition and strife is the demonstrated outward action causing division if not dealt with properly. So all of a sudden you've got division. Okay, you sit over there and you sit over there until everything's calmed down. Started with jealousy, causing strife, resulting in division. 
My dear people, I have and like you have, have seen a fair share of childish jealousy, especially us who are parents and grandparents, have seen a fair share of jealousy and strife among children over the years, right? I cannot imagine how tragically more destructive it would be when that same thing is demonstrated among adults in the church. Yet this is exactly the case in Corinth. Jealousy, a severe form of fleshly self-centeredness, was producing strife, which is an eruption of discord and rivalry and arguing. This is what was going down in the church. This, of course, is pathetic, right? It's pathetic. That you expect only children and infants to behave this way. But this happened, listen to this, this happened in the most gifted of all churches ever recorded in the New Testament. The most gifted. So if that's the case, how vigilant ought we be? Here were believers who blatantly denied the sweet love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, fruit of the indwelling Spirit of God. They denied it, they rejected it, they threw it out. These believers' behaviour was such toward one another that they demonstrated they were not walking as men of God, but like mere men, mere men who were driven by their fleshly desires. The demonstration of jealousy and strife ended up in pitting their favourite servant of God, their favourite teacher, their favourite pastor, teacher, against each other. It was deplorable and infantile. It was a spiritual barometer, we might say, indicating that they were out of touch with God. My dear people, praise the Lord. NCC has been protected from this infantile, fleshly Christianity, right? And may it continue. But that does not mean that we're immune to it. That does not mean that we're immune from that happening. Because every one of us, why is that? Because every one of us has an unredeemed nature that hankers for self-satisfaction in worldly pursuits, yes, and it can explode with jealousy and strife toward one another if not dealt with correctly. And this brings us to the point, well, how do we deal with this? We see here the solution to the division in verses 5 to 9. You see, the only solution to such fleshly mere men behaviour, it's really simple, as I often say, it's a no-brainer, the solution to this. We need to turn away from and kick to death that new enemy of unredeemed self that was once our closest ally. We need to what? Die daily to self. That's what we signified in the baptism, right? We went down in the waters of baptism signifying that we have died to self and now alive with Christ. And we are living under His reign and control as one of His loyal subjects. So self with all its 
sinfulness and its passion and its lust. We have died to that when we trusted in Christ. And now the hard work begins. Oh yes, now the hard work begins. So we have died to sinful self and we are alive to Christ. We have that in Romans 6.6, 6, by the way, if you want to look it up. It's hard, it's demanding, it's self-disciplinary kind of stuff. But when we learn to draw on the new self, this is what we must practice, this is what we must persist in, this is what we must pursue Pursue holiness, pursue righteousness, and this is how we do it. We learn to draw on the new self because we not only have this old unredeemed humanness in us, but we have a new nature when we become Christians. We have a new capacity. We have the Spirit of God and we need to learn to draw on that new nature, that indwelling Holy Spirit, and turn away from the old self and its jealousies and strife and division will never cloud your horizon. That's the solution. The trouble is, Learning to draw on their new capacity. How does that happen? Simple. Disciplinary procedure of reading the scriptures and praying and, and, and considering it a priority to gather together at church and, and meet other believers together together to pray. And this all fosters and helps our sanctification whereby we grow more like Christ. And gradually those selfish inner desires of our old humanness will fade. In other words, when our attention is on the Lord and His glory, you will kill selfish ambition and selfish lust in its tracks. You will. And don't forget that these, these very things can find their way into our lives in, in seemingly innocent and even righteous circumstances. It's not only when we think about the nasties of this world. It's even when amongst us, because look what happened here to these people. It wasn't as if they were thinking about the, uh, the, the, the evils of their culture. They were taken up with men who were preaching and teaching to them, right? I have Paul, I have Apollos, and, and I have Pete Cephas, I have Christ. So they, they were starting a following, or they wanted to start a following and, and follow certain men and putting one against the other and, and, and so forth. So seemingly righteous ways these things can come in. At the end of the day, their jealousy and strife was triggered by a fleshly hankering to be aligned to the best apostle, the best preacher, or maybe the most articulate. But this was still unspiritual behavior because it was coming from their own humanness. They were mere men behavior. It was mere men behavior. And Paul comes in and he sharply rebukes this. He berates them with his well-known device that he uses. And you know what that is? He asks a rhetorical question. He says, what then is Paulus and what is Paul, verse 5, in order to get to the bottom of this? And then he answers his own question. He says, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. In other words, he puts them straight on who they were themselves as apostles and teachers and he tells them that they were servants and nothing more. And that's all any of us are at the best, right folks? Servants, slaves. Paul reiterates here that all believers and himself included are nothing more than servants of the Lord, all on the same team with a job to do. In other words, he was saying something like this to them. 
Don't be stupid, Corinthians. After all, who on earth would hero worship or make a monument or start a movement around a lackey who serves tables or an errand boy who delivers newspapers? Who would do that? But that's all Apollos and I are. Lackeys and errand boys gladly serving the Lord and delivering his message to whoever he chooses, whoever he wants, whoever he puts across our paths. Your honour and glory in us, Corinthians, Paul says, your honour and glorying in us is misplaced. Give it to the Lord, for he alone is worthy of it. By the way, as Paul said this, he was not in any way belittling his God-given task or his way of responsibilities here. He wasn't. That's why in verses 6 to 9, Paul gives us clear instruction about his servant role and reward for his labor. But more importantly, how every servant in the Lord's work is dependent upon the Lord for its effectiveness. You know that? In other words, it's not about me, it's about the master. When we think of success, whatever you like to call it, maybe effectiveness in the ministry, it's so misconstrued these days amongst believers. Many churches, sad to say, run on a business model. A business model is one where generally you will see and often the case where you sideline God, maybe not intentionally, but this is what happens. You sideline God's input and put heaps of emphasis on the success of slick presentations, clever rhetoric, educated speakers at the expense, at the expense of depending on the power of God to cause the growth. That can so easily happen and it happens far, far too much. And this is what Paul was on about here when he's saying, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Two times he says that in in, in verse 6 and 7. God caused the growth. When I became a dairy farmer, I soon came to realize that there was one main thing, one overriding factor, that my success and my effectiveness depended on more than anything else. I was diligent and passionate. I read heaps about agriculture. I employed educated farming consultants. I joined farming discussion groups. I purchased only quality fertilizer and quality seed. I used only the best genetically proven stock. I never failed on any of that. But you know what? All that effort, all that expertise, all that passion and all that diligence was a waste of time if it never rained. If it never rained in the right amounts at the right time of the year, all that was a waste of time. Paul is saying to the Corinthians and us here this morning, as Apollos and I are God's servants, so are you his servants, employed on his spiritual farm to plant, to water, to sow, to preach, to pray, to help, to serve, to be servants together as one harmonious functioning unit. That's what he's saying. But always remember this, in all that activity, always remember, always remember the effect- effectiveness 
the success or the real true growth in God's spiritual farm is God's business and he's in charge of that. Like the vital rain and the right amounts at the right time that brought growth and effectiveness to my farming operation, it's only God that causes the true and effective growth in his kingdom where you and I are employed as servants. You got that? Now I say employed because every employer, or they should be, is rewarded with wages, whether they be great or whether they may be small. Most of it is far too small, but there you are. We're ordered with rages. Well, folks, so too will every servant of the Lord receive their reward. That's something to look forward to, isn't it? A lot of us will say, wow, we certainly aren't getting much of it down here. No, 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 no. We're talking about a future reward here. Because there will come a day, as Paul says here in verse 8, that according to his own labor, every true servant of God will be rewarded according to his labor. It doesn't say... Depending on your success or depending on your effectiveness, I will reward you, says the Lord. No, 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 it doesn't say that. It says according to his labor. And as we think about that, this labor is all about the quality and attitude of our faithfulness in the master's service. It's not about just about what we do. So whether it's getting the teacups ready there in the morning or folding the bulletins, or up here preaching, it's all labor to be done in the right attitude and faithfulness and appreciation and gratitude to the Lord. For someone who is involved in using those illustrations could very well be rewarded far greater than me standing up here preaching Sunday after Sunday. You know why? Because of the attitude of heart. The gratitude in which they're doing and willingly doing it. So we're going to be rewarded for our labor. We're going to get more into that next week because we're going to have a look about those rewards. But that's what Paul says here. That's what, and he says later on in this book, by the way, chapter 15, this is what he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove, in, prove vain. In other words, uh, he bestowed grace on me and he wanted me to preach his word and I have endeavoured to do that with all my strength. But I see, he goes on to say, but I laboured even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with, with me. That's 1 Corinthians 15.10. So in conclusion, the enemies that Satan uses on God's servants are the external influences of the world and the internal temptations of the flesh. And if we're not growing, any one of us, if we're not growing from the infancy into the infantry, if I could put it that way, from the infancy into the infantry, we will remain babes in Christ and be ever succumbing to those two enemies. The result will be in some way or another division. I'll guarantee that. It'll be either division in the home or it can be division in the whatever, in your family and division in the church. When someone leaves a church for not a right reason, not a righteous reason, that's division. 
It's like an arm that was employed in the Lord's service that decides to cut itself off and for a wrong reason, for a jealous reason, and it causes division. May we as saints put on the old self, or put off the old self and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Romans 13. I'll leave you with that text this morning. Thank you very much for your kind attention. I wonder if we could stand and I'm going to close with a benediction. Well-known benediction from Jude. It's a benediction of praise and prayer at the same time. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And the people of God said, Amen.